welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Nice to see you all. Um, speaking of celebrities, there's a rumor that JT, Mr. <clears throat> Justin Timberlake, was at the Target on University Avenue. Nobody from Awaken saw him, but evidently he was there. So that was like, that's a block from the house I grew up in. So um, I once did a skit actually with a friend of mine and we, we joked, I think I was Michael Jackson and he was Justin Timberlake and we cut out the lips, you know, and then we put our lips in there. And my friend Jeff was like, hello, my name is Justin Timberlings. He didn't actually know his name was Justin Timberlake. So the, all the junior high kids were like, dude, it's Timberlake, Justin Timberlings. So Jeff, that one's for you. Um, <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you're gonna need one. We're gonna be in John chapter four. We are walking our way through the Gospel of John uh, as a part of a larger series, uh, which is the narrative lectionary. The lectionary is just basically a walk through the scriptures in a year's time, and so we're doing that. We are in the book of John, and uh, we're entitled this series, Eat This Book. So the idea is basically we wanna ingest the story of God throughout the year. Um, before we jump in, I'll just mention that uh, in the back in the gallery, if you're new to Awaken, uh, every, about every other month or so, we do something called Artist in Residence, and so Katie Crawford is our current Artist in Residence. Her stuff is in the gallery in the back. I want to encourage you to engage in that. Katie does uh, hand lettering and calligraphy, so if you have an event coming up, you can think about that if you're looking for something of that nature. Um, John 4, if you would stand, if you can, and we're going to read from the text. This is a... a We'll read most of the story, so a little lengthy, about 30 verses or so. This is what John says, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus asked her, or answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will well up, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. <clears throat> Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
for they are a for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of town and made their way toward him. Pray with me. God, this morning, we come uh, with all kinds of things in our hearts and in our minds and carrying uh, a various number of things. Uh, it's my hope and prayer that as we gather that, uh, and turn our attention to your scriptures, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, encourage us and invite us to whatever it is that makes us look more like you, uh, sound more like you, live more like you. So Holy Spirit, uh, have your way. Uh, move in us and in this place in ways that reflect you, Jesus, I pray. And all of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Lots going on in this passage. Where is Samaria? Let's start there. Um, for those of you that don't know, we're talking about the Middle East. Um, I have a map here. I think it'll show up in just a moment. So this is basically the, uh, um, excuse me, Israel. <clears throat> and the Galilee is in the north. It's around the Sea of Galilee. It's where Jesus spends most of his time, to be perfectly honest. Um, his sort of home base is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And just south of that is a place called Samaria. It's in between Judea, or Jerusalem, the capital city, and what's in the north. Um, depending on which gospel you're reading, <clears throat> the idea is that Jesus goes back and forth between um, the Galilee and Jerusalem. Um, some of the gospels have him only going once to Galilee and then coming back to Jerusalem. John has him going back and forth a couple of different times. But either way, Samaria is the section of land that sort of lands right in the middle of those two places where Jesus spent some of his time. Now, who are the Samaritans? Maybe that's the more important question. Who are the Samaritans? The Samaritans are um, they're essentially not Jews or not pure Jews. Uh, they were the remnants of the ten tribes in the north. So if you remember your Old Testament history, Israel was a monarchy. There was one kingdom, and they split into two kingdoms. Ten tribes go in the north, and two go in the south. The Samaritans are basically remnants of the northern tribes. And essentially, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medes, they all came in and they took captive at some point in time um, Israel, the northern kingdom, and these were Jews who intermarried with Babylonians, Medes, Assyrians, right? So they're basically um, not totally Jewish. Uh, the worst terms, they were half-breeds, they called them. Um, one of the prohibitions in the Old Testament was that for the ethnic and religious Jews, uh, they were told basically not to intermarry with neighboring tribes. Uh, and yet in the Old Testament we read that Israel is doing all kinds of things that Yahweh prohibits them to do, including syncretism, like mixing of religious traditions and ideologies. They, um, they would worship false gods. They set up different temples and places where you could worship. And they intermarried um, foreign women for political purposes. So the Samaritans, according to a first century Jew like Jesus, uh, especially a, re a, religious, a devout Jew who would have kept Torah, are... Half-breeds, they are 
um, if one were to come in contact with the Samaritan, you could actually be rendered ceremonially unclean. So a few weeks ago, we talked about a mikvah and how a Jew would go into a mikvah and sort of wash before they went to the temple. If you contacted a Samaritan or were in contact with, with a Samaritan, you might be unclean, and so you'd have to go and go to the temple and sort of bathe yourself. Uh, there are some rabbinic prayers that show up a little bit after Jesus' time. One of them goes like this, thank God I'm not a woman, a pagan, or a Samaritan. <laughs> this is actually what they would pray. So the Samaritans were not, uh, not kosher, no pun intended. See what I did there? <laughs> Come on, friends. So this is in part, this is in part why the, good, the, the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells is so outrageous, right? Um, the last person who would stop and help somebody would be these sort of off-the-beaten-path people that nobody wanted to talk to, the Samaritans. And all the Jewish people, the good religious Jewish people who walk down the road, pass by the guy who's been beaten and is hurt. But it's the Samaritan who stops. Um, these people were from the wrong side of the tracks. They were in the wrong political party. They worshipped at the wrong temple, they were, everything that was wrong was with the Samaritans. Um, and so they weren't thought of very favor, favorably. That's kind of who we're talking about in this passage. So Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. Now it could be most of the time when a Jew was going to go from Galilee to Jerusalem or Jerusalem to Galilee, they would follow the Jordan River, which was that sort of uh, river along the right side. So they'd skip Samaria, they'd follow the Jordan and then come up so they didn't have to go through Samaria. But Jesus and his disciples go right through it. Now, on a story level, John is brilliant. We've talked about this before if you've been with us in this series, but here's, here's one of the reasons why. In this story, John 4, we have the Samaritan woman, but right before that is John chapter 3, and it's the story of Nicodemus. And John is a great writer for lots of different reasons, but this one, he sets up these two sort of compare and contrast, these, these two people or these two ideas that are absolutely at odds with one another. Nicodemus is a religious Jew. He's the elite. Um, other than the high priest and a few other folks, he's at the top of the totem pole in Jewish life. And this guy, um, when he, if anybody was to know what was going on with Jesus, it should have been this guy. Like, he's on the inside of in on every level. And yet, it says, John says, that Nicodemus approaches Jesus in the, in the dark of night. He comes under the cover of darkness. Like, imagine your favorite mystery TV show or drama, and that moment when, like, the one character sort of, like, sneaks out of the shadows behind a dumpster and talks to the main character, and it, maybe there's political fallout if he's caught talking with him, or economic fallout, or any number of things. That's this moment where Nicodemus, the, the, the top of the food chain, the religious political elite, should know what's going on or have some sense of what's happening with Jesus. And yet, John has him coming to Jesus in the cover of darkness, literally and metaphorically. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. You have to be born again like what? Do I have to like go back into my mom? Because that would be weird. That's actually what he says. <clears throat> he should have some sense of what's happening, but he doesn't. Then you have the story of the Samaritan woman. And if there were like a story uh, opposite of Nicodemus, it's this. So Nicodemus, a male Jewish religious elite, and then you have this unnamed woman, Samaritan, divorcee, possibly adulterous. And not only that, but she comes at high noon, in the middle of the day, when the sun is the brightest, when the lights are all on, this woman approaches Jesus. And Nicodemus, who should know, doesn't, and this woman who shouldn't know, does. He comes in darkness and she comes in light. And here's John just playing off of these 
two characters in these metaphors brilliantly. It's beautiful. So what am I going to focus on today? That's really the question. You, you read a passage like this, and you know, there's 30-some verses, so what are you going to do? Like This is the challenge of the preacher every week. What are you going to say, and what are you not going to say? What are you going to focus on, what are you not going to focus on? People come up to me all the time after services, and they're like, Mikey, you didn't talk about this. I'm like, I know, I didn't. I had 30 minutes. <clears throat> um, Laura and I are planning for a sabbatical, and um, so that's going to happen this summer, um, May 21st to August 20th. It's, we're really looking forward to it. We've been your, your, I've been your pastor, and Laura's been your first lady <laughs> for about eight years now. She's now just... <laughs> Sometimes I get this look from Laura, and she just goes... That was it right there. We've been here almost eight years, and so we've been doing a little research on our sabbatical. And this last week, you know, we're planning on doing some traveling... And uh, um, so we were looking at passports, right? Trying to get passports for the kids. And they all need to be renewed. And so Laura did some research on passports and renewing them for children. And I'll tell you what, the rules that are for like renewing passports for children, they're ridiculous. They're so dumb. Um, you, you, you have to like bring your children physically to the passport location to get their passports renewed. Which on the one hand, I sort of get, right? Like they don't want you to be able to take children internationally. But if it's a small child like a baby and they really don't know what's going on, like why would you have to bring them? That's a dumb rule. And so I'm telling Laura, I'm like, I don't think these rules are very good. And she's just like, the anxiety and frustration is growing with each comment that I make. And then she tells me that you have to bring the children physically to the passport place and guess what time the passport place closes? Three o'clock. They're all in school. Who makes these rules? Like they're dumb, dumb rules. And at one point, she's like, you think the rules don't apply to you, Micah, but they do. And I said, you know, I, it's not that they don't apply to me. I just think they're dumb rules, and they should be changed. Somebody should change them. Like, maybe that's us. Maybe we should be the ones who write to our senators and say, change the rules on the passports. A couple weeks ago, I was at midwinter, and we're crossing this light. We're going to a little place to eat for lunch, and there's no cars coming, but there's just, like, uh, the lights, and they're saying, don't walk, don't walk, don't walk. But there's no cars coming, and the light is not changing, and I'm just getting fed up with this, bananas. No cars, no cars, no cars, and finally I just say to myself, I'm not waiting for this light, and I commit, right? And I take a step into the street, and at that moment, I see the cop who's sitting, like, right there. <laughs> and I think it was John Mark and somebody else, and they're just like, <laughs> you know, like, we are not with that guy. So maybe the rules, the rules apply to me, I just don't think some of them are appropriate. And so when they're not appropriate, I think maybe we should challenge them. One of the ways to look at this passage is to think that Jesus is breaking all the rules. Because he does break some pretty significant rules of his day and his age. But I want to actually take it a higher, I want to take us up to a higher level. Because I think what Jesus is doing is he's, he's in some ways, he's transcending or he's crossing barriers and for good reason. Barriers that often or unnecessarily divided humans from one another, kept people from each other, from seeing each other, and from actually honoring the dignity and humanity of another. And Jesus doesn't have any time for those rules. He doesn't have time for those kinds of barriers that divide people. And so what I want to do in the, last, in the time that I have left here is to really look at, like, what are these barriers that Jesus transcends, that he sort of crosses? Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, says 
that Christ himself has brought us peace. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. In his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Paul seems to think that this is at the center of what Jesus was about and what he was doing, crossing these barriers and breaking down these walls that divide us and separate us. And so that's what I want to do this morning is look at a couple of different ways in which Jesus sort of transcends. He crosses barriers and offers a third way, or another way, or an alternative way. Now what I want to be clear about, lest you think I'm saying something that I'm not, I don't think that Jesus crossing these barriers equals his endorsement of anything or action, right? Rather, I want to suggest that Jesus' movement across these barriers or over these walls are an act of seeing the humanity of another person, of recognizing the dignity, the inherent worth and value and image of God in another person. And that's what he's up to. That's what he's doing. And we, we spend much of our life in our social and religious and political engendered life missing opportunities to see each other. And it's not something that's new. We've been doing this as long as the day is as humans. So what does it mean to see another human? What does it mean to recognize, to, to value the inherent worth and dignity of a person who's next to you or across from you? And when, when we make an other out of someone or some group, we can easily cast them aside. And Jesus seems to blow that up with this interaction with the Samaritan woman. So that's what we're going to do. Now, I, I feel the need to warn you maybe that the next few moments, maybe 15 or 20 minutes, might be uncomfortable um, we've been talking a lot about human sexuality around here, uh, and I figure let's just keep going with the difficult topics. So we're going to talk about race, we're going to talk about gender, and we're going to talk about religious, religion or morality. I'm systematically creating more seats in the room for our, our space problem by just continuing to talk about things that are hard to talk about. So that's our growth strategy around here. We're just going <laughs> to talk about really difficult things so it makes more space in the room for people. All right, so that's what, that's what I'm going to do right now, all right? Um, the first barrier that Jesus takes on is the ethnic and racial barrier. Remember what I said about the Samaritans. Who are these people? For a Jew, for a Jew in the first century, Jesus, these are the wrong ethnic people. This is the, these people check the wrong race box on the census, they're the, they're, they're, and they were looked down upon. They were treated as less than. They were uh, treated with contempt. Psychologist Richard Beck says, anthropologists have long noted a term called infrahumanization. It's the product of social psychology. The in-group are members who are considered to be fully human, and the out-group are members who are infrahumans. As the anthropologist Levi Strauss says, human, get this, humankind ceases at the border of the tribe. We have this unique capacity and ability to dehumanize someone who's outside of the tribe. And somehow in our social consciousness, we deem them less than human in some way in order to be able to treat them as such. Two parts to this. One for them, the people who, who this was written to first, and one for us. First, the Jews. They believed they were saved or in based on ethnicity, based on race, based on identity with Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, I'm one of them and so are you, unless you're not Jewish. So who was in and who was the blessing of God for and who? It was ethnic Jews. 
This is why, in part, the woman brings up this idea about worshiping on this mountain or that mountain because the Jews believed it was Jerusalem. And it was ethnic and religious Jews, not Samaritans, who were in on the blessing. And this is one of the greatest reversals of the Gospels. Jesus just turns the whole thing on its head and he opens up the blessing of God to any and all who affirm faith. It's the great banquet with the table large enough to heal all of the nations, not just one of the nations. This is why he gets so upset when he turns over the tables in the temple and says, you've turned my father's house into a house of uh, a den of robbers and a den of thieves. It was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just one. This is the part of the Abrahamic blessing that by Jesus' day and age, has largely been forgotten by the Jewish establishment. This is what Jesus takes on in so many ways, and it's one of the many reasons why he ends up on a cross. Now, secondly, for us, as it relates to the ethnic and racial barrier, this move of Jesus should engage us in conversation about race and ethnicity and our part in it. In a country where something like Charleston can happen without an unequivocal denunciation from our highest office, we have work to do as people who follow this Jesus who crosses racial and ethnic boundaries for the sake of love and relationship. Amen? This is not over. This problem hasn't been solved. And so for you and I who follow Jesus, follow a Jesus who crosses ethnic and racial boundaries for the sake of love and for the sake of reconciliation and for the sake of relationships, when we look around us, it's not hard to say there's work to be done. And I think if Jesus were to walk into this temple this morning, he'd have similar thoughts. And he would cross similar boundaries and barriers for the sake of relationship and for the sake of love. In a country that was founded on and built on the backs of a population of people who were dehumanized and thought of as less than human. Jesus' actions to reach out and engage and see the humanity and dignity of a Samaritan should be constantly informing our understanding and our work of racial reconciliation. Did you know that the, the original Constitution of the United States, in Article 1, Section 2, said this, Slaves were considered, for the purposes of the census, three-fifths of a person. That's like in the actual original Constitution of the United States of America. That's called infrahumanization, and it's part of our story. And it's something that we shouldn't be ignorant to, or we shouldn't stop talking about, or we shouldn't be blind to. If we're going to be people of reconciliation, which Paul the Apostle seems to think we are, according to 2 Corinthians 5, you are ambassadors of reconciliation, then we should be taking seriously Jesus' move here, crossing ethnic and racial boundaries, crossing barriers that divide humans, for the sake of love and for the sake of reconciliation. One author writes, coinciding with action, there needs to be an active awareness confrontation and discussion about our history, about our views that have shaped us for generations. Then, and only then, can we begin real and honest conversation about reconciliation and affirming one another as humans. To follow Jesus is to care about ethnic and racial division. You just can't get around it, even if you want to. And if you want to, that's another problem. 
It's getting quiet in here. I was just at Midwinter uh, last couple weeks ago, and I went to a workshop called The Roadmap to Reconciliation with a woman named Brenda Salter McNeil. Brilliant. I hope someday she can come here, because this lady will light the place on fire. <laughs> She's amazing, amazing. But when we talk about topics like this that are really heavy and difficult, and like, where do you even engage? How do you even begin? She said something to me that I thought is sort of like one of those branded ideas where you hear it and it's just you can't forget it. She said, Micah, well, she didn't address me, but I felt like she was. <laughs> you, know, you know that moment? She says, you cannot say I love you and not care about the policies that affect me. Let me say it again. I cannot say I love you and not care about the policies that affect you. And I would just offer that as one way to engage this conversation or this idea, this, this topic. What would it mean to care about the policies that affect people, our neighbors, our refugee friends, our immigrants? And there's a hundred different ways one could engage just that idea. But if we take Jesus seriously, then I would suggest that this move to cross over this barrier which was as hot as this one is in our land right now. And this is what Jesus does. This is where Jesus goes. And so if we follow this Jesus, then I would suggest to you and me that we at least need to open our eyes and just stand here instead of turning off the lights and backing away slowly. And so I'll just leave that to you to consider, to think about. What does that mean? From your position, from your seat, what does it mean to engage ethnic and racial barriers and divisions that exist in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. Let's keep going. Let's talk about gender. What do you say? Ge Another barrier Jesus crosses is the gender barrier. And um, in 2018, there are some barriers that exist related to gender. Amen? Ladies? Anybody? Okay. There is still a glass ceiling. I did a little research. Minnesota is a little better than the national average, but women get paid 20% less than their male, their, their male counterparts in our state. Some are worse, some are better. Um, and now this last year, there's this whole Me Too phenomenon, right? It's still pretty bad. I mean, it's bad in 2018, but like, there are no categories for how bad it was when Jesus was walking around in the Middle East. Um, it was outrageous the view towards women. I mean, on this side of history, looking back. Um, I quote, these are from two different Jewish, ancient Jewish, Jewish sources. Um, quote, among six activities listed as unbecoming for a scholar is conversing with a woman. Just talking to a woman would not be a good idea for a scholar or someone who is studying the text, who wants to be a professional religious person. Uh, the strict opined, what a great word, opined that a wife could be divorced without a marriage settlement if she spoke to a man in the street. So if you were a woman walking down the street in ancient Palestine and in, in Judea, and you spoke to a man, you could be divorced without your, 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 your certificate that sort of gives you any chance going forward. You can just, done. Cast aside. 
Even still today, in some traditional Middle Eastern countries, social intercourse, quote, social intercourse between unrelated men and women is almost equivalent to sexual intercourse. And if such a man and woman, quote, are alone together for more than 20 minutes, it is assumed they have had intercourse. While I think that might not be a bad idea to talk about that in our schools, um, maybe not generally speaking in our culture. Um, I mean, I, I do have three daughters, so I'm just like anything to sort of delay that process would be just fine, thank you very little. A woman's place in, in the ancient world was in the home, bearing children and rearing children. Uh, they couldn't testify in court. They couldn't ask questions or speak or, uh, in the synagogue. They couldn't read the scriptures in public. They really weren't um, encouraged to learn at all. They were generally viewed as suspect, and you would not engage them in public. Jesus is so categorically outside of the gender norms for his day and his age. It's just fantastic. Like, I kind of, if you're a woman in the room, like, you have to be thinking, like, this guy's not so bad. He heals a, a, a widow's son in Luke 7, which most Jewish people wouldn't have done. Uh, he not only heals a woman in the synagogue, but then he calls her a daughter of Abraham, which was only reserved for men who were sons of Abraham. You'd never call a daughter, a woman, a daughter of Abraham. You just didn't do it. Jesus does. He not only talks to the Samaritan woman, but he just has a chat with her. I mean, he dialogues. He sits down and has a conversation with this woman in broad daylight. And then she becomes the first female evangelist of the Gospel of John. Not only does she, does she get it, but the whole town gets it because of her. Women bankrolled Jesus' ministry. I don't know if you knew this or not, but like how Jesus does his ministry and how he becomes like an itinerant preacher where he can just wander around the towns teaching people Torah, it's women who bankrolled his ministry. This is fascinating. The women become the first witnesses to the resurrection. Friend, I mean, this is one of, the, one of the best, if not the major reasons why the legitimacy of the gospel stories are, are to be taken seriously. If you were going to propagate a story about a Messiah who resurrected from the dead, the very last persons you would entrust that story to are women. And they're the ones who get it first all the time in the gospels. If we're going to take Jesus seriously and follow this Jesus who crosses these gender barriers that divide men and women, then I think it's something we should take seriously and think about. Not only does he engage her as an equal, but then he presents her as an equal to his disciples. If, in fact, there are gender barriers in 2018, and there are women in this congregation who courageously told stories of Me Too, like sitting amongst us. If that's true, what does it mean for this community, this body of resurrection people, to change the narrative, to speak truth into a narrative that's false, that dehumanizes and delegitimates one gender over the other, that doesn't stand up for and speak into and serve and come under and support one gender so for the people of Awaken, and specifically the men in this room, I would challenge you. What does it mean to champion, to serve, to support, not to stoop down and save, but to stand alongside of, shoulder to shoulder, legitimating the strength that is inherent in femininity? 
I would hope I'd get at least like a small clap or thank you or hello. Like, what does it mean for us as a community to be those kinds of people who see masculinity and femininity not as something that does this, but something that does this? Strength unto one another, that support each other in what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine. That's right, brother. Jesus transcends racial and ethnic barriers, but he also transcends gender barriers. And he says, that's not true, and it's not gospel. It's not good news. So what does it mean to be resurrection people who change that narrative, who speak into that? And for those that have the opportunity and have power to do so, I encourage you, I implore you, I exhort you as your pastor to do so. As a discipline of your faith, Jesus seems to do it, so I say we should do it. Lastly, this religious and moral barrier. Um, Jesus transcends not only gender and racial and ethnic barriers, but he transcends and moves beyond religious barriers and a moral barrier in his time. And religious people love rules, right? Like according to human history, it seems this has been the case for a very long time. We love rules. You and I, many of us, we love rules and laws because with rules and laws, we know exactly where we stand. We know exactly when I'm in and when I'm out. And maybe even more than that, I know exactly when you're in and when you're out. Like, I love a lot to know where I stand, but I love more to know where you stand, right? In another story in the Gospels, a woman is caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. And, of course, the Mosaic law condemns her to die. And the people who bring her before Jesus know that this is the case. And so they want to get Jesus in a sticky wicket, as my grandpa used to say. Like, what's he going to do? You know, the Mosaic law says she's supposed to die, but Jesus says, well, if you've, without sin, you cast the first stone. And Jesus sort of weaves away beyond the religious and moral barriers and also this women's activity, which I don't think Jesus is condoning, nor nor do I. And he weaves a way between them that sort of transcends and crosses whatever barriers were there. In our story, this woman has had five husbands, and the man she's now with is not her husband. While the text doesn't make it explicitly clear, I'm going to go ahead and assume she has not outlived five husbands. Okay? (laughs) So we could say she's a woman of ill repute. That'd be generous. Clearly, this woman is on the outside of in when it comes to moral and religious code in her day. Jesus has every reason to dismiss her as a Jewish Torah-keeping rabbi. And yet he doesn't. Not only does he not dismiss her, but he sits down with her. And he begins a conversation about the things that matter the most. And whatever codes or barriers which would have said, you should not talk to her, Jesus seems to just cross right over them, transcend them for the sake of relationship, for the sake of love. The story ends, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Jesus transcends and breaks some of the religious and moral barriers that make this woman untouchable. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking, like, what the next step is. Okay, that might be true. Now what? I'm actually not going to do that today. 
Because I want you to wrestle with it. Again, this is my strategy to shrink the church. A lot of times, people in my position feel the need to give answers to people like you. And I would suggest that just, like, hamstrings the whole process. Because you wrestling with what does it mean that this Jesus who we follow breaks and transcends or crosses religious and moral barriers? What does it mean that Jesus seems to go beyond the ethnic barriers and the racial barriers and the gender barriers? Like what? I actually want you to wrestle with that. I was talking about this with some friends who were over this week. We were sitting at my kitchen table and I was saying, I'm preaching on this passage. And this person said something and I was like, it... I actually got up from the table, I went upstairs to the desk I was working at, got my journal, came back down, and I wrote it down, because it was like, that's it. Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the divine. The disciples asked Jesus, we want to see God, and he says, you don't need to look any further than me. So the Bible seems to testify to the fact that if we want to know the character and the heart of God, then we need to look no further than Jesus. So here's the question. What do we know about God because of Jesus' actions in this story? What do you know about the character of the divine because of the actions of Jesus in this story? I'm not giving license here to do anything because Jesus will cross whatever barrier you... That's not what I'm saying. So please don't hear me wrong. But I am saying that there is something really important about the divine that we see in the person of Jesus and the actions of Jesus to take whatever barriers, gender, race, or moral, religious, maybe that's a better word, and crosses them, transcends, moves beyond them for the sake of relationship. Jesus is, I'll, I'll say two things. Jesus is less concerned with the barriers and the fences that we put up than we are. I think that's fair. And the other thing I would say is, whatever barrier you feel like you may be on the wrong side of, is it possible that Jesus is coming for you? Wherever you've found yourself this morning, whatever you've walked in from, and however you see yourself, maybe you feel like you're outside of some barrier, some norm, some cultural code, some religious code. And I would just say, good news. Good news, because this story, it seems to say that whatever that barrier is, whatever that place that you feel outside of in from, it appears that Jesus is the kind of person that says, you know what, let's put that aside for a sec. Let's have a chat. You and me. I see you. Like the inherent dignity and image of God that you bear, I see it. I name it. I lift it up. We celebrate it. And then says, come and follow me. What do you know about God because of Jesus' actions in this story? Pray with me if you would. I want to give you just a few moments to think about that. God, as we spend a few moments in silence, which I hope is received as a gift from the frenetic and hurried pace of our life. I pray that in the next few moments, 
as we quiet our hearts and our minds, that you would speak. Holy Spirit, that you would just gently move, gently whisper. What do we know about God because of Jesus' actions in this story? And wherever you find us today, would you speak what's true? If I've said anything that's not true, I pray that it would be forgotten the moment we leave. But whatever is true, whatever is of you, I pray that it would grow deep in our hearts. It would take root. It would change us to make us more like the Jesus that we say we follow. So Holy Spirit, come, speak to us. On a pretty consistent basis, we come out of this time of silence, and I invite you to pray this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray um, for good reason. I hope that this becomes a, a river that sort of uh, begins to carve a pathway in your hearts. This is what Jesus teaches us to pray, so let's pray it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Do not let us fall into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to invite you to stand if you're not already as we close. I say jokingly, uh, this is my attempt to shrink the church, but in all honesty, I feel like this might be good news for the world, that this is what Jesus is doing, this is what he's like. Um, So I would just encourage you to think about, maybe as we make our way towards Easter, is there anybody that you know of who needs this good news? And why aren't they here? There's a song that the church has been singing for a very long time. It's often called the doxology. And a doxology is a blessing. It's a benediction. And sometimes I give it over, I sort of speak something over you, but today we're going to say it to each other as a community of people who intend to follow this Jesus. So this is going to be a little awkward, and I'm going to just ask you to go with me on this if you want. If you don't, it's totally cool. Your neighbor won't think less of you. I'm going to ask you just to turn and face each other. And uh, so you guys turn this way, you guys turn this way, if you want to. And we're just going to sing this doxology to each other as we go. So the right side, sing it to the left. The left side, sing it to the right. John, here we go. Praise God
us. The cross in the gospel is bigger and better and keeps us together. Amen? Blessings. Go in peace, my friends, and serve the Lord. Go Eagles. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.